Welcome to the Human and Technology Podcast. This podcast is for anyone who develops, distributes or uses technology. For all those who always have the feeling that technology overwhelms or dominates them. For everyone who wants to know how to deal with technology in everyday life. For anyone who wants to understand what technology does to us and how we can get our lives back. This podcast is for those who want to make technology sexy. All the product developers, designers, UX, UI professionals, product managers, CTOs and CEOs. And it is for you. My name is Dr. Peter Reska. My friends call me Dr. Peter. I am your host and I am happy that you are here. I have uh, thought quite a while about making an episode about the development process of uh, an HMI solution, of HMIs in general. First of all, it is a comparably complex issue and uh, it requires quite some focus, particularly if it is an audio-only podcast as, as I have it here. And uh, then I was not really sure whether um, a podcast about an HMI development process will find a target audience here amongst my listeners. But I received a few signals uh, that this topic is interesting for the people listening to me. So... I decided to make a little series of episodes around the creation of an HMI, about the development process, about what is required to come from an idea that you might have to a product that uh, you can sell and that you can uh, that can make users happy and that make uh, the lives of people better. And um, for this. We need a certain uh, process. Uh, we need to consider a couple of things. And, well, this is the first podcast episode about how to do this. And it uh, very much focuses on the first part of the development process, which is the analysis, the analysis part. So between having an idea and um, creating a product, having a ready product. From an HMI point of view, I see three steps involved in that. First one is analysis, finding out where am I, who are my users, what is my target, where will I end up. All these things in the beginning. Then in the middle, the biggest slice, the biggest piece is the creation process, creating the HMI. And um, then we have the implementation phase where things um, will get into reality and become into software, into hardware, into graphics, and all that is then uh, uh, turned into, into a final product. And the entire, entire process, the entire, all, all of these three steps are underlined by a constant flow, a constant row of user feedback activities. So this may include um, usability analysis, expert analysis, 
but also usability tests, larger usability studies, focus groups, and so on. But the creation, the implementation, the usability part will at least be each and a separate episode. Um, in the beginning, we focus on the beginning, which is the analysis part. And with these um, three steps, I am not uh, alone. I am basing that one on the usability engineering life cycle of uh, Deborah Mayu. She invented that almost 20 years ago. I think it was in 1999 when it was published. And she's defining three steps as well in a development process and they pretty much are they're, they're pretty much the same as, as the steps that I use and that I have defined for my process. So she she talks about requirements analysis, then the testing, design and development phase, and then the installation phase. So in the beginning what she calls requirement analysis is my analysis phase. Her design testing development is pretty much my creation. And then um, we have a little difference in where the handover or the end of the core uh, HMI development process is. Um, she puts it a little later than I do. Um, I make the handover between um, the creation phase and the implementation phase. So uh, Deborah Mayu differs between development on one side, which she puts in the middle step, and the installation, uh, including all the user feedbacks and, and uh, the maintenance activities, into the third step. But just to let you know, um, yes, it's my process that I'm having here, but uh, I'm not uh, the only one that has a process containing three steps and um, it seems like um, what what uh, I apply is is uh, not too bad. Not uh, I'm not alone with this. So let's start with the analysis. What uh, do you do in an analysis? What do you do at the very initial steps? Uh, what do I do when I show up at my clients and and when we kick off a new HMI development uh, process together? The first question um, that needs to be clarified, what kind of product do we have? Do we talk about a smartphone app? Do we talk about a car navigation? Do we talk about an aircraft cockpit? Do we talk about some uh, studio electronics, um, some some uh, uh, yeah, effect racks um, you may talk about? I mean, all these things are different products. They all have different requirements, different contexts of use. They all have different users. And the sort of first thing is, what is it we're talking about? The second one connected with this is the user group. Who is using this product? And uh, to my surprise, when I start working with my clients, they very often do not know who are my users. I mean, who at the very end of the day is taking my product into his or her hands 
and then um, trying to to achieve a goal with this, uh, trying to reach a target with uh, with that particular technology. Do we have younger users? Do we have older users? Uh, do we have educated, non-educated? Where on the globe are they? What are their experiences? What are their wishes, their dreams? What are their needs? What do we need to fulfill? What kind of um, yeah? What kind of requirements are there in this certain user group? And is it a very narrow user group? Is it just uh, one kind of humans um, that we have there, or is it a broader group? Do we have a high diversity in the the group of uh, of users of my product? And um, so again, this is a clarification that needs to be done before uh, we start thinking about technology or, or anything else. Closely connected to the user group is um, the question, how can we create value? So technology in itself is um, has no value, is not even good or bad, it is neutral. But with the value that we create with technology, that is what it makes um, yeah, valuable, that is what it makes desirable, that's uh, what it makes uh, useful. So with any technology we have, uh, we shall fulfill needs of our users, uh, wishes of our users, fulfilling dreams and making people's lives better. And better by the means of safer, faster, funnier, more focused, more cleaned up. I mean, all those um, things are making people's lives better. And a technology has to fulfill any of these to to uh, create some some value and to be positive, to be good technology. And then I get into discussing features. So what shall this product do? And this is um, like dancing on the razor's edge. Because, I mean, the less features we have, the less complexity we have, the easier the product gets, the more focused the product gets, the easier the HMI is. So we have, we simply have less, we simply have uh, less features and less complexity and, and less layers and, and less menu tree and, and everything is pretty straight and down to earth if we reduce the number of features. And of course, uh, with the zero features, you have zero functionality as you have zero uh, HMI and you have zero value. So... Again, it is not in yes, no, it's not a black and white thing, but it is a pretty delicate compromise uh, compromise that you that you need to do. And there are parties at my clients um, that tend to say, okay, lower number of features, particularly if there is uh, a person being aware about the complexity of HMIs and what that does to to users. On the other hand, um, there are managers, top managers, their marketing people, salespeople, 
And they all love features. They all love, hey, we can do this, and we added that, and this one is new in here. And, and I mean, many of them are, are more like advocates of, of, their, of, of the clients and saying, hey, my clients wants, and, and we need to have. And, and if you have a closer look, I mean, this might be one single person at one single uh, client of the company, so it's one single user of a product and um, this person may be very dominant and, and very communicative and saying, I, I need this feature, I need this feature. And then companies tend to put this one in and uh, I mean, uh, they have one person that really loves it and all the rest is just confused by it. One of my old friends of the HMI arena is uh, working at a big German car OEM and a big German car maker and uh, he's leading the HMI activities there and uh, he said to me I questioned every single feature we have on our dashboards I questioned everyone if and, and if there was no one really explaining me where the value is where the benefit is why we really need this feature, I just killed it. And I think this approach is unique, but this approach is good. It is required to reduce the complexity of technology down to where it makes really sense and where it makes fun to use it. So, the feature discussion, always a big thing at my clients. Another discussion is about uh, the user groups and particularly about the um, yeah, the mix between professionals and amateurs, when educated and non-educated uh, humans working with the HMI or dealing with the HMI. So it makes a big difference if you have a professional user he or she will make money by using this uh, HMI. Uh, he or she is very well trained, maybe very well selected. And uh, so we, we, can, we can think about a certain level of education, a certain level of knowledge these people bring in. And on the other side, there are the, I call them amateurs or ordinary Janes and Joes, um, more or less everybody that we have. So let's have a look at two very clear examples of that. On the professional side, there are pilots, aircraft pilots. And uh, if you want to become a pilot, um, that, that's not easy. I mean, they do a lot of pre-selection. And 30, 35 years ago, I, I personally thought about uh, becoming a, a pilot and I found out, okay, I'm, I'm short-sighted, so they will simply not take me. And it's not only that, it's also you have to deal with uh, three-dimensional tasks. You know, have to know a lot about physics, about mathematics. You have to be a pretty technical thinker. And that, that's only the pre-selection. And then they educate you over years and years and years. And then um, you, come, you become a, a professional pilot. And you fly aircrafts, and then you have to fly these aircrafts 
to to not lose your your license. So if you want to keep your your pilot's license, you have to prove that you're flying so and so many hours per I don't know month or year uh, to keep it alive. And then on a pretty constant uh, rhythm, you go to flight simulators and you get some extra training. In, on critical situations, they, they throw you into critical situations and you have to solve them. So you have to prove that you're fit, that you're able to solve this. On the other side, there are car drivers. So depending on where on the globe you live, but we in 16, 17, 18, maybe 19, 20, you make your driving license and they take everyone. And they almost everyone, not really everyone, but almost everyone is allowed to make a driving license. And then um, you get a few weeks of, of training and um, then you get your license and then you're fine and you're done. And uh, many people I know, they make their driving license at the age of 18 and then they go to university. They don't have the money to buy a car, they drive every now and then here and there, and then, and I don't know, 23, 22, um, uh, to, uh, and then the early mid-20s, um, they may get their first car, and then they start driving. And many of these people just go back to zero, and they start learning again, but there's no trainer anymore, there's no teacher anymore, so they learn it just by doing and even if you do not drive for 20, 25, 30 years, you just can get a car. Once you got a license, you can get a car, you can get into the car and you can just start driving. And as I said, they, they, they take almost everyone, old people, young people, um, people being aware about all the technology that they drive around with, people that are not. So uh, it's a totally different user group. And if you want to design an, a human-machine interface, if you want to make this technology efficiently controllable, then you will need to know who is my target audience, who will use the product, what level of training will this person have, uh, how much will it be selected, I mean, what is the, the ground people stand on when they use the technology I design an HMI for. Another point is the cultural background. And um, I really love to talk about this one, although, I mean, it is it may be a trap. It's pretty dangerous to talk about cultural backgrounds because you build stereotypes and then you put people into boxes based on these stereotypes and say, okay, the Asians do or the North Americans are or the Germans typically are like and um, then you put some some um, some words behind this, and then you 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 add some some conditions there. And of course, you will find Chinese people that do not what you state that the Chinese do, and um, you will find Americans that are totally different from the typical American. And so it's always a bit dangerous to do this, but um, on the other hand, these stereotypes are not totally wrong. They help us to group uh, uh, users, user groups, uh, to, to build user groups 
to build them up and then um, to uh, yeah to adapt HMIs to for example technology experience uh, for example personal or cultural tastes um, the meaning of colors the meaning of icons all that differs around the globe and so um, it makes sense to 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 differentiate uh, between user groups on different parts of the globe and um, I will definitely do a separate episode on cultural backgrounds one day because I find this totally fascinating and the big discussion point is what is the role of companies like Google or Apple or Microsoft that um, do some unification of the global taste and what will remain once we all know how to use a, uh, a Google smartphone, an Android smartphone or an Apple smartphone, whatever. But cultural background plays a role and it may even get uh, political, uh, may even go beyond taste and personal experiences. But as I said, um, I will put up a separate episode on this one and, and uh, give you my thoughts on the cross-cultural uh, usability, cross-cultural HMI design. Another important product uh, when, uh, or another point when you design a product is the history of a product. Usually there is already something existing. When I come to go to a company, I have a client there and I say, yes, we have something here. And uh, this is our today's product and it is successful. We want to improve it. We want to bring it to the next level. In uh, my professional life, I had the situation uh, only once to to have a blank sheet of paper to design on, to have a totally open field to, to work in. That was uh, when I was with a software startup called CAA. Uh, we were acquired by Harman, by Harman Automotive or Harman Becker at that time. And uh, the then time CEO of Harman Becker showed up and he said to me, hey, Peter, I acquired CAA because you built the best HMI department of the entire automotive industry. And I mean, that was a wow moment in my life. And I love to talk about this until today. But the thing is, he said, we have our brand new car radio here, the brand new Becker car radio. And I want you to design the best possible HMI. So the functionality was basically sad and um, they had a very dedicated user group uh, of, of uh, Becker car radios at that time. But there was the feeling that they needed to have a restart in the entire HMI. And um, yeah, so I got the chance to design something from scratch on a, on a blank sheet of paper. But as I said, usually this is not the case. When I show up at the client, they have a font, the company, a corporate font. They have company or corporate colors that they use. They have a product that is on the market. And um, I mean, um, they may had many, many hours of training they gave to their users. So they're used to a couple of, of um, HMI features or a couple of uh, processes and principles behind that. And usually they say, we, we're going to keep this. 
And uh, I mean, this is a, has has the advantage that there is uh, some some uh, guideline there, that there is some some rails there that you you can keep on, that you can hand on to. But on the other side, this uh, we have a product and we just want to have an improvement um, that limits uh, the amount of innovation uh, that you may put into a product into an HMI. And then finally, um, on these generic points um, that you need to think of, um, is the legal situation. There is quite some regulation out there concerning HMI. So a good friend of mine is uh, leading the development department of a medical device company. And um, he says that uh, medical device uh, HMIs, they're highly limited. So almost every color has a certain meaning. So if you use red in, in the HMI of a, of a medical device, it is always, it mean, always means danger, something is wrong, something is broken. Uh, this device needs immediate attention. So um, you're, you're having this one, uh, I mean, red is indicating that, and green is always indicating it's good, it's okay. I don't need any attention. Uh, everything is good here. And so all the most of the other colors, um, they they all have a certain meaning in that context, and there is legislation on this, and you will not get a certificate, you will not get an approval to to bring a medical device to the market um, where you use red just because it's a beautiful color, but without any meaning behind it. And um, another example from from the automotive industry. There are the so-called uh, telltales. Those are the icons um, that um, indicate, for example, the indicators, um, the, the headlights, uh, the horn. So they all um, need to have a certain design. I mean, ISO 2575 defines these. And uh, for example, in Europe, there's a legislation that says if you want to bring a car to the market, you need to meet these, this ISO standard and you need to use all the icons used there for the windscreen wipers, for the rear window heating, whatever it is, there is an icon for almost every function. And uh, you need to use this. And if you don't use it, um, you will not be able to get your uh, car into the dealerships. So... Um, those are the legal things um, that, that you need to take care of. And I'm not aware about every domain. Um, I'm, I'm far away from that. But on the automotive area, I have a pretty good overview. And this is quite a lot of legislation that you need to meet. Uh, quite a few ISO standards and other legislation that is out there. So um, take care about this. Otherwise, you won't get a device to, to, to the market. It will not be approved. It will not be legal to, to sell it. Okay, so far about, let's say, the generic points, um, the things I am talking about when, when I get to, to my clients and uh, the things that you need to do um, as a very first analysis uh, where you need to get in, where you need to collect information on. For the rest of the time, for the rest of the podcast, I will talk a bit about the methods, the more formal methods of analysis that uh, you may apply in the early stages of a development. 
And um, the first one I would like to talk about is the task analysis. So you need to analyze the task of the user. And uh, this, the users may have a main task, a focus task, and a couple of side tasks. You need to know about all this. You need to know about the priorities in the task. And you may do this by talking to the people, working with the device. So, for example, if you have a pilot and then you talk to the pilot and says, yeah, my main task is flying the aircraft and I have to take this and this and this and that. You may talk to uh, the bosses of the people working there um, and ask them. There may be uh, process descriptions um, where tasks are described. Or you just go out and, and ask people on the street if you want to design a, a smartphone app um, that helps people uh, finding the right mode of public transport. Yeah, you should go out and ask people that may have problems to this. And, and um, yeah, so, so those are the things that you do in, in, in the very early stages of a project um, that you analyze the task of your user. Then uh, another point that you can do is, if you have an existing HMI, um, is an expert analysis. And you go into a product and you find out, okay, um, they want to improve this particular device. They want to bring it onto a level, new level of HMI quality. Um, then you run through this HMI and you make an expert analysis. And you can do this in a more or less free, casual, open way. And then uh, what an expert does is um, that he or she is looking at the status quo and comparing that one to a mental optimum, to an optimum um, this expert has in his or her mind and uh, doing doing the uh, yeah just comparing and saying okay I'm, I'm i'm pretty safe here and this doesn't work and this is, shouldn't be in a different way so this uses the knowledge of the expert to to get a rating out of this a um, little more formal method are for example cognitive walkthroughs these cognitive walkthroughs um that is a procedure where you say, okay, I am in situation A and I want to get with this technology and with this HMI to B, to point B, and I have to make these steps. For example, in a car navigation, I want to type in my home address, the address where I live. And then um, at every single step that you do, you ask yourself, a couple of predefined questions. And then you rate, okay, question one and three are fulfilled, two and four mm -hmm, partially or not at all. And so you get a very good overview of these processes. And you do not need any, any um, external people. You do not need any users. You all do this based on your knowledge as an expert. And um, then you walk cognitively through this project, uh, product uh, through the HMI and, and, and you get a rating. Big advantage of this one is that you can do this before HMI implementation if you have a specification, maybe a mandatory available. So you can do a pretty good cognitive walkthrough in, in very early stages of, of the development. Another um, expert analysis is our heuristic uh, uh, evaluations 
So heuristics are, let's say, rules of thumb that you can use and that you can apply. The best known and, and very useful ones are the ones of uh, Nielsen. Jacob Nielsen is one of the big, big gurus of uh, HMI design, of HMI development, of uh, HMI analysis and, and, and ratings. So, and then he developed 10 uh, heuristics and uh, that, that you can apply. 10 rules, 10 rules of thumb, and you can go through it and says, yeah, fulfilled, partially fulfilled, not at all fulfilled. And so you get a pretty good picture where you are. A totally different, uh, very good method, uh, particularly if you want to develop an HMI that uh, is in a domain you are not fully into. So my background is clearly automotive. Um, so I think I know a lot about cars and drivers and the relationship between cars and drivers. But um, I had a project with a welding machine company and um, they had a machine um, to weld plastic tubes. Before that, by the way, I had not been aware that you can weld uh, plastic tubes. I thought they are glued. But anyway, they are producing these machines and I had no idea what people are doing with these machines. And um, yeah, definitely no idea. And uh, so I asked them, do you have a construction place? Do you have people really applying your machine? They said yes. And they sent me to a place and I was there. And so a contextual inquiry basically is that you watch the people working, that you ask them to tell you what they do, and that you ask questions all the time. And um, the idea is like um, you are the newbie and the person, an experienced person working with a product, working with a technology, working with an HMI, explains you what he or she is doing right now and why he or she is doing that and why this uh, is particularly difficult and why this one is extremely critical and so all this is uh, given to you and all this uh, is uh, in you you collect all this data from from these people working with this and in that particular case uh, when i had uh, the project with a plastic tube welding machine um I found out, okay, this machine is standing about uh, two or three meters away from the person working with it. And it was a sunny day on a construction place. So I realized um, that any kind of, let's say, small or fractured HMI will never work in this context. I need to have a very bold, very straightforward, very simple solution on, on a screen design to allow these guys to work with this. And if you work in a lab, if you analyze that, you will never find out about things like this. And so at the end of the day, um, you collect tons of information in a contextual inquiry that will help you and, and really bring in the real users, the real user's view into the development. Another thing you can analyze are log files. What are people doing with the product, with the technology when they're alone? Um, you can collect them in the background of an interaction and then use them for analysis. Um, little footnote, uh, take care about data privacy. There may be problems connected to that. You cannot just do this. Um, you need certain uh, approval procedures for this. 
But it's a very good one uh, to find out what are people really doing, what are really are they what, what really are they struggling with when they work with a certain technology. You can uh, try to get user diaries. You give these diaries more or less formalized to users. Um, they can fill in what they do with a product or with a technology. Problem here is in the beginning um, they will be very motivated, but if you do this over weeks and months. Uh, the uh, amount of information you can collect gets lower and lower and, and, and at the end you just get very poor data quality because people just don't like to fill in user diaries. You can have user interviews, you can have focus groups, uh, invite people and, and have them interviewed in various formats uh, and to collect data out of that. You can analyze earlier models so, as I said, uh, it's very, very seldom that you start from scratch, from, from, from a totally blank sheet of paper. You will, uh, there will be a product there. And if it's not an own product, you can take a competitor's product and analyze that. And um, particularly in professional environments, uh, if you have a professional development tool, if you have a machine tool, if you have a cockpit, uh, then there will be information available on how users uh, react with this, how they like it and do not like it. And so you can, you can have a, a look at that one. I already mentioned benchmarks. Uh, you can always look at competitors' products. So you can always look at products that are in other domains. Um, they may be seen as a benchmark. You can ask your your client or you can ask the people that want to develop it what is the benchmark you can even ask users and say hey what, what is the benchmark what is the best possible product uh, in, in this area and what i find out when when i start working with a client they very often say make it like apple make it like an iphone make it like an ipad so it seems like in the the uh, idea of many people today, the Apple HMI is some kind of benchmark. I have my own thoughts about this, but um, it is there, it is out there, and uh, the opinion that uh, you can, I mean, I, have, I, I know exactly that uh, benchmarks are uh, a good thing to collect information. Then you can ask marketing service departments, call senders, so if uh, you ask a call center uh, professional, they all collect this data in call centers. Uh, and there is one particular feature where 70% of all calls target to, 70% of all calls are concerning one particular feature. Then you know there is seriously something wrong and you need to change that. The sales guys are a good source um, of information Keep in mind, sales guys are more the advocates of their clients, so they are not really neutral, but uh, they want to uh, uh, bring in their clients' views and their clients' needs and their clients' ideas into the project or into the product. And um, so, yeah, they're a good source, but um, uh, filter what, what they say. And then there are very special uh, methods of uh, collecting user behavior, like eye movement uh, collections um, or physiolog physiological measurements. And um, there is a method called GOMS models, uh, which uh, slices interaction into the smallest possible pieces 
and puts a price tag. Price tag by means of time, puts a time onto each single slice of interaction. Um, it's extremely analytical, um, a very mathematical method, very useful in certain contexts, but uh, very often totally overloaded. All right, so I talked about uh, analysis, the analysis that you do before you start an HMI project, in the beginning of an HMI project, the the first projects uh, when you want to develop a human-machine interface and want to make it uh, the best possible user fit. And uh, in the first part, I talked about the more generic things like what kind of product is it, what user group do you have, what features will you have in it, how do you handle uh, more features and more complexity versus uh, less features and less complexity, professional versus amateur, user groups, culture backgrounds, history of products, and the legal situation. And in the second part, I described a few methods of analysis um, that you can do, like task analysis, expert analysis, um, heuristic evaluations, benchmarking, focus groups, and, and all these that I mentioned. That's it for today. Thank you for spending time with me. I hope you were able to take something with you and do something for yourself that will be forever. For an ongoing exchange, you will find me on LinkedIn and on my websites, peter-rusker.com and beyond-hmi.de. Write me an email under podcast at beyond-hmi.de. Tune in next time. Take care and stay healthy.